cue playback. Welcome back, everyone, to cue playback. It's 2003, and I'm playing a matinee show at the Empress Hotel in Melbourne. At this point in Melbourne's music history, venues very much curate the uh, work that comes through, uh, whereas these days it's more along the lines of a venue for hire model. So anyone can play at any venue if they're going to pay the higher fee. At this point, I've been curated with um, a very gentle uh, indie singer-songwriter. So the show opens with gentle indie singer-songwriter Chris Lynch under his moniker Broken Flight. Uh, we're up next and my band lineup feels very much uh, on the rock side of indie rock and a bit out of place with the tone for the afternoon. Um, the headliner, my guest today, Tamus Wells, uh, put on a very beautiful show of indie singer-songwriter tunes and I'd like to welcome Tamus onto the podcast today. Thank you. No, it's great to be here. That sounds like a long time ago. Uh, it is a long time ago. It's <laughs> on the 20, 20 years mark. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, now, Tamus, you've got um, a wonderful new album out, uh, To Drink Up the Sea, and um, I'd love to have a chat about that. But before we do, I want to um, go back in time even further with you and ask what drove you into uh, creating music or uh, songwriting? Yeah, I, I was probably a latecomer in, in some ways. I, I, I'd, I'd been forced to have piano lessons as a, as a kid. And then, you know, when I was age about 12, I just hated it. And, yep. and I started, you know, those AMEB exams that people do on instruments. So I, I may have been the only person in AMEB history to have failed one of those exams. So I think I failed grade one piano and I was like, I'm done, I'm, yeah. I'm out of this. Uh, but then, yeah, as an older teenager, um, you know, when I was in, you know, sort of 15, 16, um, there was a piano in our house and I just started going back to the piano and, and, and found that I actually really enjoyed playing. It was pretty mediocre playing, but I, I just loved it. And then moved to Melbourne to go to uni and found myself surrounded by uh, a group of really creative friends who all played instruments and played guitar. And um, yeah, I, I borrowed a guitar of someone and, and, and started learning that. And then, and then just got really obsessed by um, wanting to write. I think it was a really important moment too in that a lot of those friends that I had were interested in writing their own things. Mm. And that, so that rather than going down a track of just you know, playing covers, yep. uh, there was a sense in which, hey, I can hardly play guitar and I'm an awful singer, but I'm, I'm going to write a song. You know, yeah. there was a, a sort of a, a um, yeah, sort of sense of, of encouragement to just have a go at things. Mm. Yeah, so that was probably where it, where it got going. I mean, that's a, an interesting point because uh, I feel like having a few years on you, I feel like um, it was more of a punk aesthetic that... Uh, was the thing that said you can make your own music no matter how good or bad it sounds. Uh, whereas the scene that you're talking about seems to be a little bit more uh, nurturing and uh, uplifting um, rather than that sort of angsty kickback at everything. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure whether we consciously thought of that. I, I, we, the group of friends I was in, were, we were into sort of singer-songwriter style of mm. music. 
Um, but yeah, when I look back on it now, I think that, well, yeah, I guess one of the factors is that <laughs> at uni, if you don't go to that many classes, you've got an awful lot of time. And so you can kind of be on this accelerated learning pathway where you're playing guitar a lot with other people mm. and getting feedback on things that you're writing. And, and so I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a really, when I think back to those times now, they were very, um, through productive times, <laughs> maybe not so much at university, but extremely productive in terms of playing music with friends. And so have you always performed under Tamus Wells or were there bands before that uh, precursor experiments or? Yeah. Yeah. There, there were a couple of, uh, there were a couple of bands that were, uh, I think it's fair to say were awful and, <laughs> and they're, great friendships and you know I'm still um friends with a lot of um people who you know play music in bands with at that time um but yeah as i said we were all um having a go which was good but if you can't play guitar and can't sing and don't actually know that much about music <laughs> then it doesn't necessarily translate into being a very good quality um band but yeah yeah so there was a couple of i can't even remember really the names um and, and I think the, the, out of two bands, I think between the two bands that I was in, uh, there might have been a total of two gigs that right. were played. Yep. <laughs> so um, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't very prolific in terms of uh, the live shows. And those early gigs, do you remember any of the venues just for any of those uh, Melbourne music historians out there? Oh, gosh. We, we, we played it. Um, we played it because we was at, at Melbourne Uni. We, we we played uh, we played one show on campus there yep. to to kind of friends who lived in the colleges there, um, and there may have been like a a eighteenth uh, birthday or something that we played. So we, we were well and truly not good enough to actually get into a venue, a, a, a legitimate venue in Melbourne. Um, so, what were some of the artists that inspired you and were sort of influential when you were first starting out writing? Um, yeah, I, my family were not uh, a family to have a lot of music in the house as I was growing up. So they, 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 I didn't have, and I didn't, I grew up in the country, and I, you know, I didn't have a, a stereo or, you know, as I was growing up. So, so I didn't really have a lot of music mm. um, around in, in, say, in high school. Um, but one one album that, that we, we had in our family car was a tape of, of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, classic Beatles album. So, so the, the, that would have been the one that I, the, sort of the main album that I listened to as a teenager, simply because it was there. And, and I, you know, I, I wasn't um, <laughs> assertive enough to, you know, to go and buy a, a, a stereo. I didn't really have an opportunity to go and buy music, like to walk into a, you know, in those days, and uh, a CD shop or whatever. I, 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 this so, so you're saying town. the setting of your youth created a barrier to inclusion for the music scene for you? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, well, community role. So it was a very limited listening scope. Mm. Um, but Southern Purpose w was w was probably the main thing that I listened to, and then um, moving to Melbourne, uh, I started loving Melbourne's kind of singer-songwriter 
folk scene. Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember watching one of the really early Lucksmiths gigs yep. at, at Melbourne Uni um, uh, and, and just loved, loved that stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it just w- was, was really into um, a, a lot of kind of Melbourne um, acoustic bands at that, at that time. And being at uni was great because I had bands every week and, you, you know, yeah. you'd see, I saw so many live shows during that time. Mm. And uh, what was your first recording experience? Uh, were you someone that grabbed the four track early on or did you out, outsource early? What, what happened with your... Yeah, no, I was, I had a, I had a four track machine um, and... I, I'm, I'm really very untechnical. Like I, 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 I've never had gear, like music gear, um, music. You know, I've still got pretty ordinary guitar to play, and um, I never had any microphones or kind of decent recording gear. But but I, but I did manage to get hold of a four-track tape recorder, mm. and yeah, and and then did a lot of demos on that. And I think that was that was probably the turning point in songwriting where there's that period of songwriting where you're just, you know, you're sitting in your bedroom playing guitar and, and writing a song and you might write down the words, but you're not recording it and you're just remembering the song and you, you might play it lots of times, yeah. but you never actually put it down um, in a recorded way. And I, I think the step change in songwriting comes when you, when you do put it down and you listen back to it and, and all of a sudden you get this feedback on your voice and you get feedback on how the melody sits with instruments and, and you start having a more critical mm. view of that. So I think that was a really important uh, period of having the four track, you know, ter- terrible quality recording. Yeah. Mostly because of me as a terrible engineer. <laughs> um, but it gives you enough feedback to just get better. I think at, mm. at working out what works for you. And so by the time uh, you get to the first album, uh, A Mark on the Pain, um, how did that process all um, flow for you? Was it um, confrontational, having other people involved, um, you know, that transition from just having your own space in a four-track? Or... Mm, yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's a good... We, we went quiet. <laughs> we went from extremes. So we went from just a four-track recorder with me doing a terrible job uh, recording onto that to then, um, oh, I mean, there, there, there was a, a couple of little e- home-recorded EP, like a single or EPs in there that we put out. Um, but then for the album, uh, we really loved um, Tim Witten as a producer and he, he'd recorded uh, Art of Fighting yeah. um, back in the day and, and uh, bands like Jersey and other bands that uh, I think you I think you might have recorded some youth group, I'm sure. Um, anyway, there was a set of bands there that I really loved at that time. Mm. And uh, so we actually recorded most of that album with Tim Witten in Sydney. Yeah. And uh, that was so that was a big a big step up in in the you know, this studio environment and having someone who really knows what they're doing recording it. Mm. In retrospect, we probably weren't ready and weren't good enough. Oh, you know, I wasn't good enough as a as a musician, and we weren't tight enough as a band to be able to get as much as maybe we hoped out of that. But I, I think, yeah, he was an excellent uh, producer to work with on that. 
and, and learn, learn heaps from that experience. Yeah, well, that's where I was going to go. I was going to say you might be underselling yourself and maybe that step was necessary for, you know, the next development stage. Mm. Um, and did you find that working with a producer, like do, um, were you pushed out of your comfort zone? Uh, was that, as you say, just a big learning experience or um, was the environment something that was made comfortable for mm. you to work in? Or? It was very, it was so intimidating. It, I, I find it extremely intimidating playing, even more intimidating than playing in front of sort of a, at a venue, playing in front of a producer, your songs is really intimidating. So that was, that was hard. I, I mean, he was great to work with. I don't, I don't think he was making us feel like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I, 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 in retrospect, I, I would have actually liked him to be more involved with the production perhaps like in the sense of um we we pretty much prepared a set of songs and then played them and recorded and he recorded them really well and had and had some ideas along the way of what we could include on those songs yeah um but but i think as a as a sort of a songwriter at heart rather than an engineer in the way that i operate I, I think I was interested and, and, and still love like input into the songwriting mm. and, and saying, well, why don't you try this in the song? Or you've got this piece and this piece, how would it work putting them together? Or, um, but yeah, so, so on that first album, Tim was working more in a, we're going to record these things that you have prepared. Yeah. Yep. Um, now, years back, I remember us um, having a little bit of a debate about tape versus digital so that first recording with tim Whitten would have been all tape yeah it was uh, and so where where do you stand on tape these days uh, i mean I'm, I'm not an audiophile so, so i don't uh i what people describe when they say that they hear the tape in the final recording or whatever like that sort of sense of you know you you, you would you would absolutely hear degrees of um nuance in the way things are recorded than than i than i can pick up um but i i, I do think that that in, rather than it being a different sound i think tape changes the way that you record mm. and because it's much more difficult to do chops in and out yep you're you're pushed to try and record whole songs at one time much more yeah uh so i think that has been really helpful and interestingly like the most recent the, the new album is on is nearly all on tape so that's uh, been that's going back to that experience and, and and i think it pushes you to yeah to record in a different way and, and maybe that maybe there are other parts of it it brings a different sound tapey kind of sound as well but i can't hear that as much as sure. people can um so the new album you had the chance to work with Greg Walker, uh, who's of Machine Translations uh, fame. Um, how did that come about? Um, I'll, I'll just say at this point, though, um, I I went to my CD rack that I don't do very often anymore to look for um, some of your releases earlier today, and in uh, just right next to your uh, last album, I think it was um, is the two Machine Translations albums that I've got. Mm, <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of synergy there, but yeah, how, yeah. how did that all come about? Uh, yeah, well, coming out of those COVID years, 
I, I just had a set of songs that have been sitting there for a couple of years and, you know, unable to, to really think about how to record them <laughs> being in lockdowns uh, for most of those two years. Uh, and then I was, I was really unsure about what to do. And I, I just went out for a walk and I, I put on, I was just listening to some music um, on a, some Spotify playlist. And then uh, uh, Machine Translation's song, You've Changed, came on. Mm. And I thought, that is such amazing production. And, and I had been a huge fan of his um, before we'd moved overseas, so in kind of the mm. mid-2000s. And, and, you know, the, that, the album, the 7-7 album and uh, album Happy from Machine Translations, you know, he, he, he's a genius uh, in his songwriting and production. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I thought, how do I get in touch with this guy now? <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I just tracked down his email and um, he was incredibly busy. Uh, so I couldn't, we couldn't start working on it for another six months after that. Wow. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I'd always really admired his, his work. And, um, and he was kind of coming from a place where he's kind of got this... Uh, trying to find the word to describe it. There's sort of this sort of slightly t- twisted view, uh, version of folk, like where, where he's sort of, um, there's something really beautifully off offbeat about it, about the way he approaches songwriting and production. Um, so I was really attracted to that. And um, yeah, I'm really, really super glad that it's that it managed to happen. So the new single, It Shake the Living Daylights from you, uh, for my money, that's got a bit more of a, a 60s pop feel, maybe a little bit mm. um, Beach Boys. Um, and I found the, the vocal production seemed to have a bit more, um, it was a bit more forward, mm. bit present, uh, maybe doubles in there. I don't know if mm. uh, yep. that went. Um, so uh, how did you negotiate those production choices uh, with Greg? Yeah, I mean, he's he's been by far the most uh, uh, sort of engaged producer that I've worked with in in, in terms of saying, um, play the songs for me. I reckon we should do this with those songs, like, like really wanting to get involved in what the sound was. And, and I was really happy to have him be very proactive in, in that role. And so, he, I mean, he does that really well on his records and other records just that the um doubling vocals and really layered acoustic instrument stuff um and you also obviously with you know songs like uh you've changed and a lot of his singles have got that 60s kind of feel to it mm. um so i think he really brought that out uh, um especially in that song Particularly, um, that with the seventh, the sort of the seventh chords and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm really pleased with how that song came out, and he, his his vision for that was a really big part of how it ended up sounding. And what was the most challenging thing uh, during these recording sessions? Oh, I, I mean, yeah, you'd you'd know about this. Like the, uh, I always underestimate how difficult recording an album is, and how much it's three steps forward and you know, one step back every t- every time you lay things down there's things that aren't quite working and you only realize that in the moment yeah um 
so it's 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 always just like a wrestle <laughs> to, to, to kind of pin songs down and and when i've got a set of demos i always underestimate the degree to which you um have to work and wrestle with these songs to yeah. to get them into shape and, and then and then when you release an album and people hear a song and, and, and it's you know it's in it's and i have this happens to me when i listen to albums you know and the song comes out in its final form you think oh it seems it seems fairly straightforward and it must have been pretty easy to put that down and, and you, you sort of don't um yeah you don't sense the degree of wrestle that there is to push it into the final shape that it's in um but that's a fun that's the whole fun of songwriting and productions but the wrestling the songs down and finally pinning them down um yeah i guess in my role either as a producer or even mostly playing in bands um it's that you get something that you think is pretty good and then you've got like another four or five voices that say, well, we're just going to change that. We need to change that. And can we make that louder? And we need to retract that. And, yeah. um, every revision that you're noting down, you're just thinking about how many hours it's going to take. So, yeah. But, but in your mind, do, do you think all of that, do the tracks end up better? Like with all of that feedback, do you feel like it progresses or do you feel like sometimes there's more and more feedback. Do you feel like it regret regresses sometimes? I think it can go both. And I think um, in the producer role, uh, particularly you have to make a case for um, when is the song having the greatest impact? Mm. So some people, uh, once again, if we're talking about um, tape, you might get one fantastic performance and it might have a couple of uh, notes that waver, but the overall performance is much more engaging so that would be the pick um rather than going for uh, perfection you want something that's going to have the impact um I, I listen back these days to um a little bit off, off topic but um i started trying to get my drumming chops up again so i was listening to a lot of the bands uh from my teenage years where i already knew the beats well and i was listening to some of the early simple mind stuff and going Jim Kerr's voice is all over the place. Like, but you're not listening to the song and thinking it sounds terrible. You're thinking it's passionate, the song's delivered well. Um, and if you went back and tried to fix those things, you'd probably lose what you had in that moment. Um, yeah, so I think it's a wrestle. Sometimes people will, if you're doing commercial rock and you've done, you know, 20 takes of the lead vocal and you're going through word by word to put, you know, to put together the best vocal, um, I definitely think you can lose something. Um, most of the time that's my patience. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, as you say, there's something to be said for getting that performance um, mm. and people being drawn into that rather than, some idea of perfection. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep going. It's all right. <laughs> uh, and so the, the new single has an accompanying uh, video clip uh, made by the wonderful Andrew Watson. Um, this was done at Heathcote Racetrack. How, how did this happen? What on earth made you think, um, let's head out to Heathcote Racetrack? Um, for our listeners out there, give them a little bit of a background and um, try and describe this video clip. Yeah. Uh, so, so the video clip is shot at Heathcote Raceway, which is different from a speedway. I didn't realise this. Speedway is the 
where you go around a track and kind of do those skids around on the, the dirt tracks. Mm-hmm. A raceway is like a straight run, um, go as fast as you can, kind of drag, dragster yep. style. Um, so, yeah, we are, it's about two hours out of Melbourne, Heathkit Raceway. The song has reference to small towns, a small town and a speedway and kind of that, uh, the, 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 yeah, the sort of setting of being, the, the, the quirkiness of spending an unexpected weekend in a, in a small town like that and, and going along to the raceway. We, partly based on experience in Western Australia, last year we, we were in this tiny town halfway up the coast, Western Australian coast, and uh, it, the town was very small, but it had this speedway and it, and it was speedway weekend that weekend we were there and there was people from all over Western Australia, this huge crowd and um, it's just amazing how these towns get transformed by this very particular crowd of people who go around from speedway to speedway with their muscle cars and dragsters and stuff. So that's a really fascinating little cultural um, moment and wanted to have the video clip to the song kind of related to that experience. Um, yeah, so Andrew Watson was kind enough, uh, you know, great, um, great sort of film um, person. So, yeah, he, it's great to have him involved. And we went up there for a day and recorded, um, yeah, a whole lot of scenes around. And I love the way that he brought out the, the sort of the, the sort of muscle car stuff. But then there's also this really uh, um, fragile kind of nature stuff in the video. Yeah, as well, I was going to ask if that was an intentional contrast to bring in the, I don't know if violence is the, the right word, but um, it's certainly two different elements um, to be contrasting. Uh, was, was that something you thought about or was that something Andrew? Uh, gone... It was something that evolved when we were there because it's yeah. this really interesting setting. It's not, it's not, there's the town of Heathcote, but the, the speedway um, or the raceway is about 15 or 20 minutes out of town. So you're just out in farm sort of bush land, mm. uh, seemingly a long way from any urban setting, and then suddenly there's muscle cars and burnouts. Um, so it's this really stark contrast, which which we found really interesting. Um, yeah, so I felt like a good uh, sort of quirky uh angle to have for a for a clip Did for you, the, uh, try to get single. one of the cars to drive or well it, there were moments there where we, we we possibly could have angled to to get into one of those cars but yeah it didn't it didn't quite happen um yeah fascinating fascinating culture there's some people who are very into their automobiles um at those places and spend enormous amounts of money um making these things run. It's also a very fam, a very family kind of event. Like there's lots of kids running around and yep. sitting there watching their dad or mum, you know, drive their muscle car. <laughs> um, so you're touring in the past. I mean, a, a lot of artists have had um, touring curtailed over the last few years because, because of COVID, but um, you've somehow become quite the phenomenon in China. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we that, very, yeah, very un- unexpected. We, we we had like in the um, yeah pre in the pre COVID years, putting out some of those previous albums. Um, yeah, we had 
are released in Japan or released in, in Europe and in Australia. And we've done it played in various places. Mm. Um, but then one particular song, Velvet Fields, uh, by quirks of timing uh, in, in China at a moment when China was um, becoming much more open to, to Western music and also had the platforms to share it, like through ringtones and mm-hmm. um, sort of online platforms for sharing music. It was the start of that in China. And through 0% promotion, um, the, the song, yeah, just had sort of a viral life in China. Um, apparently, particularly on like ringtone, phone ringtones and and just sort of sharing amongst university students at the time. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and to, to the extent that it, it's a couple of years ago, they were doing The Voice China, like the, as in The Voice, the singing competition mm. thing. And one of the early rounds had Velder Fields as as a uh, as one of the songs that the contestants were singing. That's so it's kind of one of those yeah. sort of really strange things where one particular song at a particular moment has an audience that is ridiculously unexpected. And have the royalties from the voice flown in yet? Uh, they have. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thankfully, during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> the album artwork. Um, which is gorgeous, by the way, um, by is it, um, Agathe Bouton. Uh, 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 Agathe, I think is the way that she oh. pronounces it, yeah. Um, so how would you describe the the album cover for those people listening? Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a piece of artwork by, by Agathe and it's a, um, I think this is the way that she had described it. It's a, uh, like a tree trunk, if you imagine mm. sort of a, a cut tree trunk with um, concentric circles and, and lines going in towards the centre of the trunk. And, and so she's done a print of that onto, um, uh, yeah, and so it's sort of a, a circular design, but it's got, the, it's got these, the sort of eccentricities of, of the, the actual, the original wood that it was um, made from. So yeah, she, she's a brilliant printmaker and and artist. I really love her stuff, and we've got a couple of things of hers in our house here in Melbourne. Um, and was it your day job that um, let you cross paths with her to begin with? Uh, yeah, it was in it was in Myanmar when we were living yeah. there, and her and her partner were working. Um, I, I was actually working with her partner at the time um, mm. for an NGO, and yeah, so we got to know it. We could sort of cross paths for a little while of our time in Myanmar yeah. before they moved away. But just she, she's lived in various countries around the world with her partner doing you know, humanitarian jobs. Um, and, yeah, it's just made some fantastic work over the years that we really love. And it felt like it kind of connected with this album. Um, yeah, that series of work that she'd done. So, yeah, really pleased to have um, been able to sort of link with her and, and feature her art, art in the, the album, yeah. Now, if, if memory serves, when we first met, you were studying a Master's of Public Health. Um, yeah, yeah. Lead into right, yeah. your work, um, work in Myanmar. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that was like a precursor to knowing that we wanted to work overseas mm-hmm. uh, in, yeah, in sort of aid work. Um, so I did a Master's of Public Health and then moved to Myanmar 
and worked on public health programs for a few years and then transitioned and worked more in sort of advocacy, politically related uh, programs for another couple of years. We spent about seven years in Myanmar mm. uh, and then moved back to Melbourne about 10 years ago now. Um, yeah, yeah. So that it was amazing the experience generally being in Myanmar, but also meeting people like Agat and, and other foreigners who were there during a really interesting time in the country. I'm sure that we could do um, a whole other podcast just about the intricacies and delicacies of um, aid work overseas, um, but it sounds like an incredible time. Um, sure, yeah, definitely. Do, do you feel like um, those experiences have informed your art, um, your, your songwriting, or do you find that your songwriting needs to be a space where you step away from all of... Uh, mm. That's a good. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, in a in a minor way, I guess um, some of the songs that I've written over the years have have had very direct references to you know the experiences in Myanmar because we spent so many years there. Um, yeah, but I think in in a lot of ways they feel quite separate. Uh, songwriting, I'm not sure what it's like for you, but songwriting for me is sort of a zone that I. I sort of go into to step away from the rest of life at times. Like it's, you kind of, um, even if it's just for five minutes, sit down and play the guitar and you just think of a melody and it sort of takes you into a different place. Yeah. Um, and I think in the years before we went away and then while we were in Myanmar and then since we've been back, it, it's played the same kind of role. You kind of shut everything else out and you just, mm. um, just enjoy trying to make up new new melodies or yeah um and now another question i've got is um have you ever considered joining overachievers anonymous because um not only do you have the aid work background and um the music career um you've also moved into visual arts um and were a semi-finalist in the moran national portrait prize when did you become such a fabulous artist i was i was uh very surprised when i saw some of the um the work coming up in your social media feed especially the charcoal work oh firstly thank you i feel like a total <laughs> amateur in in the uh, um in the painting world uh yeah i think i just get obsessed by things like i'm an enthusiast for new new things and and during COVID, or, or yeah, it was really during the period of COVID, um, it was partly related to my my dad, who was really unwell, and he he's been a, he was a lifelong artist, um, okay. mostly like watercolor kind of landscape stuff, and yeah, he kind of ended up passing away a couple of years ago. Um, but in his final uh, couple of years. Um, I just really enjoyed having painting as a point of connection to him. He, he was a, he's a he was a massive painting enthusiast over decades and knew a lot about art. And so, for me to be able to be having a go at things and connecting with him around art was was really special. Um, yeah, and then and then during that COVID period, I I just got genuinely obsessed by portrait portraiture mm. uh, and 
and took a pretty deep dive into that stuff and 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 still do i'm doing a lot of it now um as well so yeah um i think it's sort of that same part of the brain i think that that you write songs or mm. painting or you're using that same part of the brain where you're trying to um just understand and express something uh yeah, so I don't know how you you find that. Does that translate for you across sort of creative, different creative realms? If you feel like it's the same part of your brain that's being used, I, I have attempted some visual arts over the years, but I found that the, just having time to do everything that I love, um, yeah, I chose music and attempt to be somewhat competent. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think there's. I think I mean you're more than more than competent, <laughs> but I think this creativity it's not necessarily just like fine art, um, like in doing a podcast or or even in in um, you know community work. I think I think there's that there's sort of a, a a way that you can approach it that is thinking of possibilities and it's it's about creation of something. Um, that's exciting in the same way as thinking of a new riff on the guitar but yeah I definitely know. think so um i mean have you settled on a medium yourself that's most preferred are you still sort of trying to trying everything or... uh in terms of the the visual the portraiture stuff yeah I, mean, I i i haven't yeah i mean i, I, I love oil working with oil, oil paints is amazing um and i also love charcoal but I've definitely zoned in on um, portraiture and I think I, I started off um, really not being sure who, who it was that I wanted to do portraits of and I more recently got excited about an extreme localism in the way I think about portraiture, like that I want to be a portrait artist of Footscray and I want to... I want to find people here who, you know, were in Footscray being the suburb that I live in in Melbourne. Um, yeah, you know, sort of hyper-local way, try and express something about the place that we live in and the people. So that's that's what I'm getting to towards uh, with what I want to do with portraiture, yeah. Yeah, so I'd say a similar, um, as you say, with community work, um, I guess something that sparked off my mind was talking with a lot of uh, local Indigenous community in Collingwood. Um, for for people who are, um, aren't familiar with the Collingwood area, there's um, a massive housing estate and one of the buildings uh, on Wellington Street has a gorgeous mural that's on the side of the building. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't have any Indigenous representation of the local people. Um, and I found that odd. And speaking with um, Indigenous locals, they found it odd. Um, and so that spark led to uh, getting a grant so that we actually can um, have a new mural made for the front of my works building that does showcase local elders, um, their portraits, uh, and a flow of time and creation story. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope that that spark of creativity sort of flows across all of those yeah, and, and there's also, if I can jump in there, like there's also a sense of, as I was just saying about place and people and, you know, for me being in Footscray and having your art connected to that place that you've you know, spent 16 years working 
in these places in Collingwood and there's a sense of place and people there for you. And yeah. so that idea of creating that wall is more than just you haven't just arrived yesterday. You know, it's, it's been a, a chunk of your life that you've spent in that place. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's so much that can be said on that. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Um, so the second single, uh, Every Other Day, um, that's just been released. Love it. Um, would you say there's an Elliot Smith vibe running through this one? Um, I, that was the, the feel I got. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of that directly. I mean, the, the double or tripled vocals would obviously nod in that direction. Uh, I, I, I've never, I, I, I mean, I really like Elliot Smith, but it's, these albums have never been ones that have have been incredibly influential to me. Like I, I, I have, I've enjoyed them, but um, I think probably in the back of my head, there's probably a little, little more Bell and Sebastian in, in okay. that song. I can see it. Yeah. Uh, in the way it's sort of laid out and and maybe even the instrumentation as well mm. is a little bit along those lines, which I, I mean, I love Bell and Sebastian. Mm. It's got a bit of that 60s kind of feel to it as well. Yeah, yep. Uh, and so what's the next step? Obviously, the album's coming out very shortly. Um, will there be launch shows? Will there be touring? Um, is... Yeah, yep. So, we're, so it comes out on December 8th, the album, and then uh, we've just booked in a, a, a tour for uh, April. So we're going to uh, Japan and China and then playing a show in Melbourne in early May. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. At the yeah, we're at the Melbourne Recital Centre, so that'll be that'll be nice. Um, and what else can you plug for us today, Thomas? <laughs> um, What's the best if, place if, to if actually? If you haven't heard it yet, if you haven't heard it yet, then uh, the the Indices album that Chris Lynch. <laughs> you mentioned him earlier. Um, Broken Flight. Broken Flight albums have, have have stuck with me over the years. Um, I've really enjoyed them, and he's got a new kind of instrumental project, um, Indices, which which is very sort of gentle instrumental, um, which I would thoroughly recommend people <laughs> listening to. Um, and uh, what's the best place to buy your music and actually support you directly for <laughs> your skills? <laughs> Does anyone buy buy music these days? I, I didn't think that was a thing. <laughs> Is Bandcamp um, a good place to go? Well, uh, d- does anyone buy music from from Bandcamp? Like, is, it, is that a thing that happens, or, or does everybody just listen to streaming platforms? I think a lot of people do just stream. Um, I always encourage people to actually buy things. Have you got T-shirts? Uh, no, we don't. But I'm I'm very open to merch ideas. We, 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 on one tour, we had like uh, guitar plectrums. Yep, same as well guitar plectrums. So. <laughs> Didn't someone go through a phase of tea towels? Oh yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I, we haven't done that, but I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a merch option in there. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll um, put up the links and uh, the tour dates in the episode description. Um, but thanks so much for coming on today, Tamus. Um, really appreciate appreciate your time and um, this gorgeous new album. Um, And to everyone listening, we'll just sign off, as always, with there is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing what you're doing. Thanks, everyone. Q Playback.